This is the Fatty Joe Show, coming to you from Casa de Cary, deep in the forests of Nutmegerville. This show is dedicated to exploring pathways to better health from a holistic perspective. In each episode, we will explore such topics as nutrition, mental and emotional health, fitness, and more. I'm Yogi, your host, and I became interested in studying health after conventional health dogma became damaging and led me to become massively overweight. Against modern convention, I went on a keto lifestyle and I lost over 300 pounds and gained a level of control on my personal health that I never had before. Now I'm on a journey to find out what is myth and what is truth in the ever convoluted world of what is considered healthy. Come join me on a journey of discovery as I look for a path to improve total health. If you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash the fatty Joe show or patreon.com slash Carrie Brown. If you want to check out all of our social media links and recipes, head to carriebrown.com. Don't forget to leave a comment, like, and subscribe to the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Fatty Joe Show. We are now on with Dr. Ted Naiman, author of The PE Diet and regular on the dietdoctor.com. He is the man who inspired our Carrie Brown to go keto to help with her bipolar disorder. So we're going to get into things with him today, and we're going to talk to him about his research on, on diet and his different approach than what is normally considered on keto and why it works better for certain applications like fat loss. Hi, Dr. Ted. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, we are doing better now that we have power and internet because we were sweating for a little bit. Oh, dang. Yeah, we had a big storm here in Connecticut and it blew down a bunch of trees that crashed through cables and everything. And my workout lately has been getting out there with the chainsaw and the axe to clear stuff out. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember the East Coast, man. That, those are the days. Yeah, well, you know, if it isn't the storms on the East Coast, it's the earthquakes on, on the West Coast or the fires, you know, everywhere, everywhere you go. That's true. What's going on new in the Ted Naiman world? Oh, wow. Well, you know, it's, uh, my job's just a little bit weird with this whole coronavirus thing. So I'm actually doing quite a bit of virtual visits, which is new and weird for me. I kind of suck at that. And uh, other than just, you know, coronavirus, like destroying uh, any sense of normalcy that anybody ever had, uh, not a whole lot else is going on. I'm just like a lowly primary care doctor. So I still just show up uh, and see patients every day. And that kind of thing. That's kind of an interesting topic to broach. And I, I don't want to get into any of the controversial stuff about coronavirus, but the uh, uh, coronavirus going to change kind of how treatment works in medicine uh, permanently. Uh, 
Well, I, I uh, in terms of virtual visits, yes. Like overnight, every doctor on the planet had to ramp up their ability to see patients virtually. And long after the coronavirus has died down, that's going to stick around because it's just so convenient. Like nobody wants to come and see me in person anymore and sit in our stupid waiting room and read a magazine from like, a hundred years ago. So the virtual visit thing is here to stay. And honestly, it, it should have already been in place. So that's kind of a really good kick in the pants that medicine needed, I think, to get on board with uh, virtual visits. And so, yeah, you, you were saying that the, um, the telemedicine is, is going to be the thing that's kind of got a kick in the pants from the whole virus to keep going. Does that affect how you do your, um, your your histories and how you do your examination? Obviously, you can't when you're doing telemedicine. You can't do like a physical examination of somebody right there. Um, do you do it like on a screen? Do you have them like lift the shirt or you know like if they got a bruise or something? Or uh, yeah, you would not believe the things that people have tried to show me <laughs> on their video camera at this point. You really wouldn't. Um, but I'm, yeah, there occasionally there's just something that I just absolutely I'm like, oh, my God, we have to, you know, we have to do something surgical to that. Or, you know, you have to come in. We have to biopsy that. That can't just we can't fix that through your camera. So uh, I would say like 20 percent of the time I make people come in anyway. But uh, 80% of the time, you can pretty much accomplish, you know, this, the, the things that people need uh, virtually, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And, you know, it also, I think, probably opens up for more people to have accessibility to medical treatment that otherwise may have not had that accessibility before because of transportation issues or um, possibly because of work issues. I, I know in a lot of the inner city areas that people will not go to the doctor because they're afraid of missing work or they're, they won't get the medical treatment that they need because it, it's so many bus trips away, they just can't get there. So if they can get on their phone and, and you know talk to the doctor and see if they actually need to come in or not, it's probably going to be a great help for a lot of people. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I do have people have to string together a bunch of buses to show up, and it's so much easier for them to to just uh, call me up and have a virtual visit. So I like it. It's good. It's great. It's a huge addition. It's it. You know, I can see there's there's going to be probably a bunch of pluses and negatives with it, but there's probably going to be a lot more pluses than people realize. Yeah, definitely. And that's where I'm at. When we uh, talked about this, we we wanted to get into keto a bit and. Uh, as I was saying off air, you um, and also during the intro, you were the person that uh, through Twitter, I believe, inspired our Carrie Brown to do keto. And you had saw something that she posted about bipolar disorder. And you said, hey, you know, you might want to try this this type of diet. Um, so obviously you've had some experience using keto in a medical setting. And what what? Was it about Carrie's story that you said, hey, uh, you know, this keto thing might work best for you? Oh, wow. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't remember exactly. I just, I definitely have had other patients tell me that their bipolar symptoms 
uh, dramatically improved with ketogenic diets. So, uh, you know, I figure it's probably worth a try since it's such a harmless intervention. And, uh, you know, it's free, it's harmless, it's easy. Uh, worst case scenario, you know, it just doesn't help you. So uh, I think when something is has that much potential for benefit and that low potential for harm is probably worth a try for a lot of people. Now, you were also one of the earlier uh, earlier adopters in the medical field as far as using diet like keto to help treat patients. What brought you there? What what got you to that? Because still to this day, you have doctors that will tell you your diet matters, but then it doesn't matter. You know, uh, it, it matters to get you weight loss, or it matters to get you this, but it doesn't matter for your brain health. It doesn't matter for your joint health. It doesn't matter for any of these other ailments, type 2 diabetes, just take your insulin and, and keep you going. So what brought you to more of the nutritional approach in your medical practice? Oh, wow. Well, that I, you know, I would credit that to one of the patients I had early on back when I was an intern. So I went to, I got out of residency 20 years ago because I'm super old. And uh, I went to Loma Linda Medical School, and it's this vegetarian mecca, and I was raised vegetarian. And uh, so I, I kind of came out of medical school with this belief that diet didn't really matter very much because I had this on paper excellent diet, you know, uh, that was just free of cholesterol and saturated fat and animal products. And, and yet my health was not that great. My body composition was not that great. None of the people around me were really any better off than the average person. So I just, I, I left medical school with the, the thought that, uh, yes, we should all be on a low fat, low cholesterol, low saturated fat vegan or vegetarian plant-based diet, but it doesn't really matter. And what really matters is genetics and people whose parents were diabetic are just going to get diabetes. And here's the drugs that you give them. And you just kind of feel sorry for them because they have bad genetics. But then in residency, uh, that's where I was first introduced to low carbohydrate diets. I, I was doing my residency in this really rural place in, in the deep south in South Carolina. And I, it was the diabetes capital, type 2 diabetes capital of the country at the time. And there was just so much diabetes pathology and everyone just you know, got sicker and sicker. And one day a patient came in and saw me and he had lost 30 pounds and he had stopped taking all his medication and his blood pressure was fine and his A1C went down and I, you know, I asked him how, what the heck did you do? And he told me, I just read this Atkins book and stopped eating carbs and uh, boom, it was easy. And I, that had such a profound effect on me that I, I, I had to do a research topic in residency, like a, a three-year uh, dissertation type thing. And my area of research at the time was macronutrients and health. And this was back in the late 90s, and like I actually had to go to the medical library and look up articles on paper because not everything was on the interwebs. And um, but I, you know, I that's really where I got my start. And ever since, I've been looking at macronutrients and health, and how uh, what we drives how much we eat, and then what happens downstream of that. And that's really kind of how I got started out. Oh. 
So when you're jumping into all this nutritional uh, approaches to to treatment, um, I've read and seen articles about people like Tim Noakes getting a bunch of pushback from the board, from the state, from the government, you know, going against the the dietary standards of the government. Did did you get any pushback from your peers or or any kind of you know uh, administration board or anything like that for for changing toward a more nutritional approach? Oh, well, definitely a lot of pushback. So especially at the beginning, you know, everyone was like, you cannot recommend these diets because total cholesterol might go up and then everyone's just going to drop dead of heart attacks. And in fact, that is very commonly exactly what happens. Everything you can measure improves, you know, uh, body fat percent, body composition, weight, A1C, insulin, triglycerides, lipid ratios, blood sugar, everything you can measure gets better. And then your total cholesterol goes up, you know, 10 points. And so there's always a huge amount of concern from the medical establishment about low carbohydrate diets because you just raise somebody's cholesterol and we all know that's basically the number one killer right everyone dies of uh cardiovascular disease so who cares about the other stuff because you just raised someone's total cholesterol and they're basically just a walking time bomb so yeah i i've had a lot of um sort of pushback like that i i've tried to be very under the radar most of my career. So I don't think I've been a lightning rod for low carb hate the way poor uh, Dr. Noakes has been uh, or some of these people. So no, I don't have a really big story like that. I've never gotten into any kind of official trouble with it, but um, definitely some sidelong glances from my peers for sure. <laughs> it's It's hard for me to fathom that when you have all this results from the patients that you're doing that are positive and leading in in a lot of ways better than the drugs that they're taking they're they're getting better health markers than the drugs they're taking that other doctors would look and go no man you're killing them but yet that happens and it's it seems to be very difficult to change the mind, but there are a few people like yourself, and as well as a lot of the citizen sci scientists, as, as such as uh, Dave Feldman and Ivor Cumming, that are really uh, switching their their views more toward a nutritional based diet. It seems to be growing. Where do you see the future of this movie? Do you think it's going to be a larger movement, or is it going to be a long fight with medical? Uh, drug companies and and uh, the Coca Cola running the the American Diabetes Association and and all that is it is it are we still up for a big push or or we have we got that boulder to the top of the hill about ready to drop it down to the other side. Uh, I, you know, I just, I feel like the whole span of, of the 20 years I've been doing this, that um, low carb has just steadily gotten more and more acceptance. And I, and I feel like things have really gotten definitely way better. And, uh, and I actually think that, I don't know, we're going to have this magical tipping point. I think we're going to have this very, very slow acceptance where all of the established people 
uh, eventually to the point where they're like, well, yeah, I sort of recommended low carb all along. <laughs> you know, when I said low calorie, well, carbs are calories. So I was really saying, you know, low carb is a good, good plan. So I think we're like backing our way into a broader acceptance. And I don't think there's going to be this giant tipping point type thing. It's just going to be gradual. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a cholesterol still seems to be a big uh, hot topic button with a lot of doctors, even though the FDA has loosened their regulations on cholesterol and said it's not the danger we thought it once was that the diet heart hypothesis may not be exactly proven, but you still have a number of doctors freaking out about that total cholesterol number and pushing the statins, even though that the statins may not be beneficial to majority of the population that they're pushing them on. And so can, can you tell us a little bit about cholesterol and, and where is it that you might actually have to worry about cholesterol and what, you know, where, where's the happy medium in that? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with the whole cholesterol lipid hypothesis is that, it, first of all, you have to have cholesterol. Without it, you're going to die. So it's obviously on some sort of U-shaped curve. And then secondly, the lipid hypothesis just does not take into account all the people with sky-high cholesterol who don't get coronary artery disease. So obviously LDL particles are involved in atherosclerosis, but that it's kind of the same way gravity is involved in plane crashes. You know, most planes don't crash. And so you 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 could say that gravity is involved in the final common pathway. And that's certainly true of LDL particles, but LDL in and of itself definitely cannot be causing atherosclerosis because everyone has LDL, not everyone's getting atherosclerosis. So I think we have to somehow tease out um, cholesterol from atherosclerosis. And we just, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're making progress. Um, when I look back at the beginning of my career, it was so binary. Oh, you have high cholesterol, you need a statin, you're going to clog your arteries. And, and now it's a lot more nuanced and it's a lot more um, subtle. And even from the medical establishment and lipidology, um, I think things have gotten a little bit better in that we're not quite so black and white and we're not quite so binary. Uh, but we, we have a long way to go still. I mean, I, I, I feel like the cholesterol thing is one of the biggest roadblocks to low-carb diets. Yeah, I've seen a lot of pushback, especially amongst people in the vegan vegetarian world. Who it's to me, I find it ironic that there's so much conflict in those areas, considering both preach a whole real foods diet as your predominant source, and they have a lot of similarities, but yet they butt heads. And, and one of the big things they butt heads over is this consuming cholesterol thing, and. Uh, it, when I was working in trucking, there was a lot of drivers that were otherwise healthy, but their total cholesterol would be high and they would get suspended licenses and things because they're still, especially in that field, so focused in on the cholesterol uh, levels. And they wouldn't look at the HDL particles, the LDL particles and break those down. They wouldn't look at inflammation. They wouldn't look, they wouldn't do a calcium score. I, I saw people that had high calcium scores but their cholesterol was fairly low and they didn't get 
uh, a suspended DOT medical certificate or, or restrictions on their license, even though that what we're studying now, it seems like the calcium store, store squala, the calcium score seems to have a larger impact on whether or not you're going to have atherosclerosis than the, the, the cholesterol does. And can you tell us a little bit about the calcium score and where it plays into the, the atherosclerosis the, and as well as the inflammation and the LDL and how those are different? Yeah, I mean, CT coronary calcium score is probably one of the best predictive um, evaluations we've got. If you have a really low score, you're pretty much not going to have a coronary event for the next 15 years. And so it's an amazing test. It's better than anything else that's non-invasive. And I do love CT coronary calcium scores. And it's so much better correlated with future risk than any cholesterol um, total or LDL cholesterol number. So it's a, it's a great test. I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm glad that Ivor Cummins has, has really um, kind of championed this test because it's, it's really useful information, and I am a big fan. Uh, I, I think that um, it's been just extremely liberating for a lot of my patients who are lean mass hyper-responders, and they come in with total cholesterols that are through the roof, and that their cardiologist is freaking out, and they can pull down a maybe a zero on their CT coronary calcium score and everyone um, sort of backs off a lot. So really helpful test, really valuable. Uh, best use of it, definitely in my opinion, is someone who's otherwise low risk but has sky high total and LDL cholesterol because that's going to be... Um, that's going to be the person it's going to be most valuable for. I, I'm not a big fan of a CD coronary calcium scores in someone who I know has a million risk factors and probably does have bad disease because uh, it's a little less um, helpful. It's like, I think your score is going to be bad. Oh, yes, it is bad. That wasn't that helpful. I mean, you can track it serially and get multiple data points and see if you're accelerating or improving and, so even then, it's still kind of useful. But my favorite is people who don't have any other risk factors except for a sky-high cholesterol, and then the CT coronary calcium scores of zero is saving a lot of statin prescriptions. Yeah, I can imagine. And it, um, you know, my dad is one that's on a statin, and I've tried to talk to him about it. He's, you know, constantly going, "Well, my doctor said I had to be on it," and uh, it. it the side effects of the statins kind of gets me a, a bit worried. Uh, with Carrie, you recommended the uh, ketogenic diet for brain health. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about how the ketogenic diet, the restriction of carbs, uh, the inclusion of fats and, and protein, how that affects brain health and how it affects things like bipolar uh, traumatic brain injury and, and other psychological disease. I know they've uh, the the walls. Doctor Walls has had uh, very interesting results with uh, um, with uh, uh, autism in people. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the the keto diet and brain health and and where where you see that how do you see that helping. 
Well, okay. So, you know, if you look at bipolar disorder, all of the drugs we're giving people for mood stabilizers have a lot of crossover with anti-seizure drugs. And so uh, because ketogenic diets are so effective for epilepsy and seizures, it's not a huge stretch to think, okay, you know, if we're treating bipolar with anti-seizure drugs and keto is so effective for seizures, maybe there's some crossover there. And I think that um, I, I like, honestly, I have no idea what the mechanism is there. And all I have is anecdotal information, but I have had an, a small handful of patients now who tell me that it's been really dramatic for um, insert brain condition X here. I've seen uh, ketogenic diets help people with bipolar, with migraines, with seizures, obviously, uh, but uh, all sorts of things, traumatic brain injury and uh, uh, even uh, some more common issues like depression and anxiety. So it does seem to be really helpful. I honestly couldn't tell you why or how. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I feel like it's a tool in the toolbox. And because it's so harmless, uh, uh, like the likelihood that it's going to do anything bad to anyone is so small. Uh, I feel like it's worth trying probably less harmful uh, than most of the medications we're giving people. So why not, you know? Uh, and we've seen in our societies that oftentimes, as of now, because of government subsidies on food, the cheapest foods, uh, calorie sources you can get are the high carbohydrate calories that are available in a lot of the food deserts. And one of the correlations for mental health that I, I have seen is in a lot of these low-income areas, when people eat a lot of high-carbohydrate, high-sugar diets, they are prone to uh, a lot of anger issues, a lot of self-control issues. And when they are put on, there was, I can't think of the guy's name, but he talked about being in prison. He transferred to a keto diet in prison. And he was doing it to get fit and buff, but he noticed that his cognitive abilities increased, that his self-control increased. So there must be a play with carbohydrates and how they affect how the brain functions, the sugar. So do you know anything about that on how, how the sugar or the foods that convert into sugar can affect the brain function? I really don't. And I also think it, it might be way more nuanced than just not eating carbs. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, other nutrients that people are probably low on if they're eating processed food. So, you know, we have these studies where they just give fish oil capsules to prison inmates and violent crime goes down by 60%. And it's, it's pretty crazy. So, uh, I think I think there's more to it than just ketosis, but uh, I do think that dietary improvement, whether it's micronutrients, whether it's uh, um, more ketosis, whether it's uh, just improving a body composition, which is going to improve insulin status. I don't know which of these things is doing what, but I do know that if people get on a really well-formulated diet, they have all these improvements, and I have no idea what's what's driving them all. I just know that it it seems to work, and it seems to be a big deal. So, but yeah, I cannot tell you exactly how. That's for sure. 
Yeah, it does seem in like in medical science, there's a quite a few undiscovered countries, and the brain is definitely the top of the list on on that factor of how the brain functions and why it responds to certain things. I mean, you can see that in the medical, the mental health field when they try to give somebody a prescription, they're constantly testing things out to see what works because they don't know. They're literally throwing stuff against the wall, going, "Let's see if this works." You be calm now, and then it doesn't work a year down the road and they have to do the whole process over again. So it's definitely, definitely a challenge. So one of the main things that you use the ketogenic diet for, and you have a different approach than a, what is professed by a lot of people with the higher protein, lower fat approach is fat loss and getting fit. And you have written a book called the PE diet, which I love the title. And <laughs> Um, can you tell us a little bit about the PE diet and and why your approach is effective so much in creating that lean body composition? Sure. Okay, absolutely. So basically, if you zoom way out and look at the big picture, um, you humans eat to get two things. And number one, um, nutrients that plants draw up from the soil, which is nitrogen and other minerals, and that's what they use to make protein. And then energy, and all dietary energy, your carbs and fats, are just solar energy that's been stored as carbohydrate chains by plants. So when you eat, you're getting solar energy stored as chemical energy, carbs and fats, and then soil uh, minerals, which is nitrogen, the, which you know forms protein and other minerals. So you're you're eating to get sort of protein and nutrients from soil, and then also carbs and fats, which is solar energy stores chemical energy. The what happened with the whole obesity epidemic? The entire obesity epidemic was caused by the fact that we developed the ability to add more energy to our diets without the protein and minerals, which, which drives a lot of satiety. So we figured out how to strip energy out of foods, refined carbs, refined fats, sugar, flour, oil. We dumped in all these refined energies uh, and that diluted out protein and minerals. And so now everyone has to eat way more calories just to get the same amount of satiety out of their food. So we, we basically separated energy from satiety. And so now when you eat a processed food, you're getting a crap ton of energy and the satiety is, is hugely diluted. So the whole point of the PE diet is to try to flip that around and you go way out of your way to target the protein and mineral side of the equation as hard as possible and then just eat energy after you've satisfied your um, your protein and mineral needs. And so you're just less hungry, you don't have to eat as much, you're, you're not getting as much protein and mineral dilution. And that's kind of what's behind the diet. Now, there's another layer to it, which is this whole fat adaptation piece that people get from low carbohydrate diets. And so uh, in the PE diet, I'm specifically highlighting the benefits of going on a low carb diet, which is fat adaptation. You're a lot less dependent on glucose. You can make your own glucose. Your, um, uh, you, you get this almost superpower of being able to survive on stored body fat. But then when you're eating, you're getting uh, the highest satiety per calorie if you're eating more protein and fiber and eating less 
uh, carbs and fats, especially refined carbs and fats. And that's what the, the book's about. It's about balancing uh, the protein from your food with the energy from your food. And we have a million studies, like literally a bazillion studies that basically prove that the higher the protein percent of your diet, the less you're going to eat on a, in an ad lib diet where you're eating as much as you want. So if your if your goal is trying to get thinner and and which will make most people healthier because their insulin levels will be lower, then you really do want to crank up that protein percentage. So I'm basically coming at it from a, like a high protein ketogenic approach, if you know what, you know what I mean. Yeah, and I, I do find that uh, for my satiety levels, a higher protein, I do require a bit more fat in my diet, but I also do my ketogenic diet, not just for fat loss, but for brain health as well. So I try to incorporate, my brain seems to function better when there's a lot more fat in the diet, but I tend to rotate between the two. Sometimes I'm very high protein, sometimes not. One of the concerns that people often raise about about a higher protein diet is the mTOR gene effect. Um, what? How does eating a higher protein diet affect the mTOR response? Gotcha. Okay, so most let's say somebody goes on the PE diet, right? Your your average American is eating, you know, ninety one, maybe you know, around a hundred grams of protein a day. And on the PE diet, you're eating a gram per pound. So maybe you're eating 150 uh, grams of protein instead. So I would say the average person's going from 100 grams of protein a day to 150 grams a day. Uh, what they're also doing, however, is slashing their carb intake at least in half. You know what I mean? So as you're getting thinner, even though you're eating more protein, you're eating less carbs, you're eating less energy, your overall insulin exposure is going down. But the really big factor here is as you get thinner, you, the amount of insulin you're exposed to goes way down. So mealtime insulin is, is only, you know, half the insulin you're exposed to. The other half is your basal insulin. And the thinner you are, the lower that is. So if you look at insulin area under the curve, if you're thinner, it's going to be way, way lower. Even if you're on a high-carb diet, a high-protein diet, or, or both. So just being leaner is going to spare a lot of mTOR activation because nothing activates mTOR uh, uh, harder than insulin, basically. So being thinner, having lower basal insulin levels is going to um, lead to less mTOR activation than just eating higher protein or carbs at mealtime. Now, does the source of the protein make a difference? Because a lot of people will still preach about going toward plant proteins as the best proteins. Then you have the Sean Bakers of the world who say it's animal products is you're going to be your best proteins. You need to go to them. So does the source of the protein actually make a difference in, in the diet and how your body responds? Um, well, so at the end of the day, you, you are going to break all your protein down into these amino acids. And so the individual amino acids are going to be the same whether they came from plants or animals. So not, not directly are you going to have a difference between amino acids from plants versus animals, but animal foods have a 
a perfect array of amino acids. So you basically have all the amino acids you need to build an animal when you eat animal foods. When you eat plant foods, you're, you're definitely not getting a complete array of amino acids. So plant foods are just automatically inferior when it comes to protein because you're not getting a full spectrum of the amino acids you need to build an animal. The other problem with plant foods is they have lower protein density, so you have to eat more of them to get the same amount of amino acids, and that could possibly mean overeating carbohydrate, especially if you're getting your protein from legumes or something like that. You know, you have to eat way too many carbs from beans or something to get adequate protein. And then the other problem is you've got fiber and anti-nutrients. And so the absorption and the digestibility is a lot lower with plants. So there are multiple reasons why plant protein is inferior. It's not a full spectrum of amino acids. Uh, fiber and anti-nutrients interfere with the absorption. And there's just not as much protein there, there to begin with. So um, animal protein <clears throat> is better. Of course, having said that, you can get by on plant proteins. You just have to kind of go out of your way to target protein harder. Yeah, and as speaking as someone who has tried that, it can be quite difficult. I also noticed that when you're going with a, and this is one from my own perspective and also witnessing other people that have gone down the same path that I have, it seems like the plant protein does not have the satiety effect that animal proteins do. And you you get that hangry feeling not long after you had your last meal. And so that's got to keep your insulin you know, level spiked quite a bit because you're constantly hungry. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is because when you're eating mostly plant protein, you're basically getting a lot of carbohydrate that comes along with it and that just keeps people on the blood sugar roller coaster which is which is why i'm really biased towards the animal side of, of food yeah now as far as animal proteins go what are what are your favorite things to eat as far as well, I, I'm always worried about a quality, you know, you really want to be eating animals that were eating what they're supposed to eat just because of the fat. So if you're eating animals that were fed, you know, soybeans and uh, that sort of thing, you're going to get a much higher omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. So I like to eat properly raised animals. My favorites are grass-fed beef pastured eggs and wild caught fish and seafood so that that's like the the base of my food pyramid right there sounds like a fantastic meal right there i just uh all three of those things on my plate i'd be really happy mm -hmm. so yeah i i've been actually listening to mark hyman's book about the uh he, he wrote a new book about raising properly raising animals and the and the um how the food chain is damaged in our modern system. And he does talk quite a bit about the, uh, the damage to the animals that these capos and things do. So the, also the properly raised animals, it also affects their micronutrients. And that can also have effects on your satiety levels, how much micronutrients you get in, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's just one more reason to eat animals that were um, eating what they're supposed to eat. And to to kind of touch base on the whole vegetarian thing, the 
one of the things too that uh, a lot of the vegans and vegetarians will tell you is that you need to have these plant uh, foods in your diet because of the mineral content. And I'm not against plant food. I, 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 I think there's a lot of delicious plants that go very well with my steak. And, uh, but they will tell you, you need to have a, a ton of this plant food to get these micronutrients such as the mineral content of the magnesium and things is, is that necessarily the case or can you get a lot of these, these micronutrients in animal foods? Well, okay. It's, it's obviously possible to eat, you know, hundred percent vegan, hundred percent carnivore. I, I do think optimal is probably somewhere in between, uh, especially on like a population level. So, uh, you know, Animals have hemoglobin, which is this molecule centered around iron, and plants have chlorophyll, which is this molecule centered around magnesium. And so I, I feel like if you're eating 100% animals, you might not be getting optimum intakes of magnesium or potassium. And then if you're eating 100% plants, like most of my vegan patients literally do have iron deficiencies. So I don't think you're necessarily optimal on either side. Um, I, I nothing nothing in the universe is ever binary. Nothing's ever all or nothing. Nothing's ever a hundred percent or zero percent. Everything's in between. It's always shades of gray. Uh, the you know humans like to go extreme. Like I'm going to eat hundred percent this and zero percent that. But everything's a U-shaped curve. The answer is always somewhere in the middle. I don't like the extremism and religiosity of the the two sides. You know what I mean? And I do think like optimum is probably somewhere in between. And basically every human who's ever lived has been an omnivore, has eaten some plants or some animals. And that's clearly what we are. And And so I think that... Uh, the carnivores have to exist to balance out the vegans, but I don't really like either extreme. You know what I mean? I think the answer is somewhere in between. Well, as long as we're on touchy subjects, let's talk about fasting. <laughs> so that is a, uh, there is a lot of conflicting information out there right now in, in the fasting realm of whether you should be fasting, whether you shouldn't be fasting, whether you should do extended fasts or or do just daily fast. And I have noticed that some of your posts have come out on your position on fasting, and it is contradictory towards some of the other people in the mainstream fasting. So first of all, we know that fasting isn't for everybody, and we, we want to make sure that we're not dogmatic on that approach. But what is your your approach to fasting, do you use it in your medical practice? And if so, how does it, how does it work in, in your medical practice or in your life? Well, okay, so <clears throat> uh, again, fasting is one of these things that's definitely on a U-shaped curve. And you want to have some, but there's such a thing as too little or too much. I mean, you obviously have to have some sort of fasting period every day while you're asleep. And extending that a little is probably going to help some people uh, get more in touch with hunger and fullness and get more fat adapted and be able to function in a, 
low energy environment where you don't have any food. And so uh, some amount of intermittent fasting has got to be uh, important. And um, basically every human is going to have some sort of fasting period during the day when they're not eating. So that has to be important. That has to be crucial. That has to be something we have some of. But then you can clearly take that way too far. And in our uh, long-term fasting experiments, we do see a ton of lean mass loss, and we see refeeding syndromes, and we see electrolyte problems, and we see uh, there's clearly bad stuff on either side of the U-shaped fasting curve. So there's clearly a sweet spot in the middle. And the only question is, what is that sweet spot? which is probably different for everyone, and then also different based on their circumstances. I think that the more fat you have to lose, the, 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 the more extended fasting is gonna be probably beneficial, and the less fat you have to lose, the less it's gonna be beneficial. But there are caveats to that, like people who are, have really low muscle, like you know, sarcopenia, low bone density, we're on a low protein diet before, I probably don't want them fasting for days. I would rather they be on a protein sparing modified fast where they're at least eating some protein and minerals. Um, so it kind of depends on everybody's starting point and where they're at. And then it's a moving target. As you get leaner and leaner and leaner, you want to fast less and less and less because you're, you, you don't want to lose lean mass. And so fasting's on this giant U-shaped curve, but the general rule of thumb is everybody should have at least some intermittent fasting window daily. And then you decide what's right for you. And the thinner you are, the less, uh, less I like fasting um, and the more uh, sarcopenic or nutrient deficient you are, the less I like fasting. And then in those settings, I like protein sparing modified fast, which is really just where you're eating protein and minerals and you're skipping, you're trying to shave the carbs and fats as low as possible. Mm. Now, most people think, though, that in order to be um, satisfied in your diet to, to fight that hunger response, that you're going to have to have a high amount of fat in your diet. and you your approach is very different that your satiety response to it's different from what the common impression is your approach is that higher protein is going to satisfy that hunger response a lot more than the higher fat what is that mechanism that that um, that you're hitting with that satiety response with the higher protein and leaner protein than the higher fat and protein model well, well, most of it just comes straight out of medical research. Like every single diet study ever done, humans or animals, the the higher the f protein percentage, the less animals eat. Period. I mean, it's it's almost a perfectly straight line. So, uh, if you look at every study that compares low carb and low fat, the first thing they have to do is fix protein, because if you if one diet had a higher protein, it just completely blows carb versus fat differences out of the water. So protein is really uh, the number one macronutrient uh, consideration for pretty much every diet study ever. So that's huge. Um, the other thing is if people are really overweight and they have a lot of fat to lose, I think what a lot of people don't realize 
is how much available fat you have in your bloodstream. So, you know, there's all these theories of internal starvation and things like that in people who are eating carbs. But the reality is that overweight people, uh, especially over fat and insulin resistant people, their free fatty acids are way higher than normal all the time. Their, their triglycerides are higher, their free fatty acids are higher, they have more um, available fat, they have tons of fat. So clearly the problem isn't, I need to be eating more fat, you know what I mean? Uh, so if you're trying to find satiety um, and you have all this fat on board and all this fat available, eating more fat is probably not going to be the most helpful thing. In fact, we have studies showing that eating fat in, in overweight people is is far less satiating than in normal weight people, probably because they already have plenty of fat. The other phenomenon is that it takes so long for fat to be absorbed. It, it's like it takes, you know, 12 to 24 hours to to go through your small intestine and uh, enter chylomicrons and go through the thoracic duct and end up in your liver. And by the time it really hits your system, you're, you know, you're talking 12 hours down the road. So if you're overweight, you've got fat is, is the most, it's something you already have a ton of, and it's, it's already higher in your bloodstream. And it takes so long for this absorption uh, and the satiety is already lower. Uh, it's just not my focus. You know what I mean? I, but what you're really trying to do is leverage satiety from protein and minerals, in my opinion, in that setting. You're keeping carbs low to force yourself to be more fat adapted. You're eating protein and minerals for satiety. And you're maybe not eating a ton of fat because you already have some. Yeah, it's, you know, it's. For a lot of people, I think that initial start of the bullet or doing like the bulletproof style diet, the higher fat can get them on board with a fat. But when they want to see future results, playing with those macros can really help out a lot. And I, I've seen a lot of people in groups going, man, once I raised my protein up and lowered that fat, I really started seeing these pounds go down. And I, I really see... Um, in practice, I've seen a lot of what you're saying to be true, but we still have so many people that have that dogmatic approach. It worked for me initially when I did this, it must work for me now, or it works for everybody else, it must work for me this way. So it's it's good to see somebody that actually challenges people's perceptions and challenges the dogma to help people get on a, a better path and adjust things, especially if something's not working, you need to adjust. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. So one of the other things that uh, you have been very popular at is the fitness side of things. And as we were talking off air, I, I watched a lot of your, your videos and things where you talked about doing bodyweight fit, fitness. And I'm a big guy. I, I came from powerlifting and things like that. So getting into bodyweight fitness, I was like, ah. But then I started doing it, and it was, it was fantastic. Um, Tell us a little bit about how the the how beneficial these body weight exercises can be on on a hormonal approach, on a lean muscle mass, and, and as well as 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 the fat loss. 
Well, when I started out with the body weight, I was mostly just trying to improve accessibility to exercise. I was, you know, I have so many patients who they're working two jobs, they're working a hundred hours a week, they got kids. I mean, they do not have the time. They don't, they they can't afford a gym membership. They don't have time for it. Like those are like massive luxuries and, uh, uh, you know, so so for me, it was like, okay, how can you get in, get your exercise, and get out as fast as possible with the very lowest time um, requirement? And that for me, that was just body weight. But the longer I've been doing it, the more I've realized that not only is body weight the fastest and most efficient way to exercise with the very lowest barrier to entry. But it does a couple other really beneficial things for you. It's basically sending a message to your body that it needs to be stronger and lighter at the same time. So I think that might be uh, especially good for fat loss in a way that just lifting external objects might not be as good. I I do think lifting weights is the very best for absolute strength and the ability to move things around you in your environment. But body weight is the best for relative strength and uh, getting stronger and lighter at the same time and the ability to move your body through space. And so there's a lot of things just automatically that I like about bodyweight exercise. Um, You know, first of all, it scales infinitely. Like there's nobody who's doing um, one-arm push-ups, one-arm chins, you know, for reps, uh, you're just not going to find these people anywhere. So it's not like it's going to get too easy and then I'm not going to make any more gains. You know, you can basically scale these infinitely just by making the progressions harder. And so, you know, it, it takes less time, less equipment. You can do it anywhere. And uh, that's just hugely appealing to me because I'm kind of a minimalist and, uh, I just want as many people to, you know, get in and exercise as possible. And the other thing is I think we we hugely overcomplicate everything, right? I have all these patients who are like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start this big exercise plan. I'm not going to, you know, I have to set a bunch of stuff up. So I'm going to start it next month and I'm going to get a gym membership and a trainer and a tracker and a log book and my wristbands and my special shoes and i'm gonna you know it's all gonna i'm like just screw all of that and get on the floor right now and do a max set of push-ups with really good form until you feel like you're going to die and you just literally benefit yourself more than all of this planning and setting up some elaborate crazy exercise scheme and if more people would just drop to the ground and do a hard set of push-ups at whatever level they're at uh, I think you know everybody would be better off, and so that's why I really, I really like the body weight thing. Yeah, and you're also a big fan of instead of doing things by sets of actually working to exhaustion, working a muscle group to exhaustion. How does that benefit you more than doing like three sets of ten for whatever you're going to do? Yeah, I, I'm every set is AMRAP for me, as many reps as possible. Uh, it, it doesn't even make sense to let, let's say you're going to do 20 push ups every night 
for the rest of your life. Okay, the first week, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle. Then it's going to be easy. And then one million push-ups later, you won't be any stronger or better, or you'll have no adaptation. So you, the only way exercise is helpful is if you push yourself as hard as you can, so you get some sort of positive adaptation afterwards. So every set you ever do should basically be maximum intensity all the way to failure. Uh, counting is pretty much pointless unless it's uh, keeping you within a reasonable rep range. Like if you can't even do one, it's too hard an exercise. And if you have to do a hundred hit failure, it's too easy. And so the only reason to count is to basically be somewhere in a, like a, you know, five to 10 or, you know, 10 ish rep range. So it's kind of a reasonable, um, difficulty level but otherwise every set should be taken as hard as you can go i mean otherwise you're just wasting your time yeah this is i i really like this approach and it's something that's it's kind of opened my eyes and as a matter of fact we're doing challenges in a couple of the groups that i'm in and in one of the groups we're doing random acts of fitness where you find around the house and you do bodyweight exercises and you figure out the creative more creative you can get the better and like it's a great one it's a great entryway into to exercise two not a lot of people can get to the gym right now in some areas the gyms are shut down and they may not have that home setup to be able to work so i think body weight exercises is great and three some of the most physically proportionally strongest people i've ever met in my life have been gymnasts oh yeah do body weight exercise. I was a power lifter. I lifted heavy things, but then I'd get up on a pull-up bar and be like, ah, I'm stuck. And these guys are just, you know, they're putting 45 pound plates between their legs, getting up there and repping things out. And I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah. So I, I've become a bigger, bigger fan of body weight exercises. And another thing that I've been a bigger fan of body weight exercises is, is the joint sparing aspect of body weight exercises and the fact that it can be a lower impact on, on, especially as we get older, our joints, less wear and tear. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, how that mechanism can actually preserve the, the particular moving parts of our body that we want to be preserved? Yeah. I mean, so this is, I'm going to piss off all the weight people weightlifting people out there but i have so many older patients who are literally retired from barbell lifts like they cannot back squat they cannot deadlift they cannot do these big heavy uh barbell lifts anymore because they've you know they worn out their hips they blew out a lumbar disc uh, they can't overhead press because they tore a rotator cuff. I mean, I've seen so many people who injured themselves doing really, really heavy powerlifting type moves. Uh, but you know, I then again, I got patients who are ninety and they're still doing push ups and pull ups and sit ups. And so I feel like you know, I'm in this for the long game. I want to be able to exercise when I'm hundred years old and. I don't see a lot of people that age doing really heavy, you know, PRs and singles and doubles of like barbell lifts, you know what I mean? Because the injury risk is just really high. 
And so that's just one more reason, in my opinion, to go with bodyweight exercise. You're just a lot less likely to get hurt. These closed chain bodyweight exercises are really safe. Yeah. And the, the bodyweight exercises, that is strength training. That is resistance training. And we have two different kinds of training that we can do that can bring us different benefits. And one is cardio. The other is the strength training. We've talked a lot about the strength training. But what are the different benefits that you can get from doing cardio training versus strength training? And what are some drawbacks of, of Cardio is awesome. Like everyone should be doing cardio. Cardio is literally strengthening the most important muscle in your body, which is your heart. You're, you're literally less likely to die if you're doing cardio and you have a stronger heart. And you want to be in the highest amount of cardio respiratory fitness possible. You want your VO2 max to be really high. You want to be able to generate a ton of whole body power output and so cardio is huge cardio is awesome everyone should be doing cardio i think it's uh pretty much equally important to resistance training and uh so the the benefits are massive uh i think however it's on a u-shaped curve and if you're doing too much cardio you're basically gonna lose muscle and so if you just look at your your marathoners all of your elite marathoners um have quite a bit of sarcopenia going on and i don't i i do think you can do too much cardio but then you can also do too little cardio so this is a u-shaped curve and i think everybody should be doing some and you have to kind of play around with it and find out what the right level for you is but i think it's huge i think it's uh literally going to make people live longer and <clears throat> the biggest thing for me is chronic disease prevention like uh, people who are in good cardiovascular fitness are 12 times less likely to get alzheimer's dementia that's huge nothing else even comes close to that uh bmi doesn't come close to that any particular diet doesn't come close to that Cardiorespiratory fitness is the single best way to not get Alzheimer's dementia, and, and that's a massive big deal. Uh, so, yeah, everybody should be doing cardio for sure. Uh, I, I've, I was reading an article in WebMD recently, and they actually were saying that cardio also has another benefit for eye health, that it actually uh, raises people's visual acuity and processing ability in, in their in, in their eyes and helps increase uh, vitamin A content in their eyes. So like, that was one that I didn't, I had no idea. I didn't know that either. Wow. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, it was, uh, it was in WebMD recently, um, but uh, I, I, I didn't get a chance to really look into their source material. I just kind of read the article and you know, they have, they just give you kind of the basics and don't really explain everything to you. <laughs> but that was one of the research studies that they were doing recently. And another, um, another form of exercise that's become very popular, often misused, is HIIT training. And what is your opinion toward the HIIT training and, and how do you, you know, properly use that or should it be used? Or Oh, you mean high, uh, like high-intensity high interval high, training? Yeah. Uh, I think that when it comes to cardio, you can always trade intensity for duration. And we have a bunch of studies that show that, you know, like, for example, uh, uh, Dr. Gabala, who wrote uh, One Minute Exercise, he basically did this study where 
uh, pedaling for your life all out on an exercise bike for one minute uh, in 20 second intervals, you know, was basically equally beneficial to steady state cycling for 50 minutes. And so you can get this massive trade-off between intensity and duration. And since everybody I'm seeing doesn't have enough time for exercise, I always like to crank the intensity up to maximum. So you're just not wasting time. I mean, you know, you could just walk up an incline for two hours, or you could do some high, some super high intensity, the highest you can manage a few intervals and get the same benefits in five minutes. And so I, similar to resistance, I'm always trading intensity for duration. And I think that's the way to go. Awesome. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing a lot more research into that also lately, and it seems to be the popular thing. The one thing that I have noticed is they have advised people on you know, that uh, the HIIT training should be short with plenty of rest, and most people aren't doing the rest part, and they tend to be prone to injuries that way. So one of the things that we like to do on the show is we have a Patreon group uh, that we allow, there are rockstar groups as well as our unlimited rockstar group. And we allow them to know who the guest is ahead of time and give them the opportunity to ask some questions. And I do have a few questions for you. Um, Dave Davis, who, uh, I think, you know, he's, he says he's one of your patients. He's part of our group. He says, uh, what are doctors current thinking around cholesterol and whether it is or isn't the problem it used to be? Well, um, <clears throat> depends on which doctors you're talking about. I would say that the, the standard uh, medical establishment view is that LDL is the cause of atherosclerosis. And LDL is causative, and LDL is the number one thing we should be worried about. And I just don't believe that at all. I really have a huge problem with that. I can see that maybe if every other thing was equal higher LDL is possibly worse than lower. Uh, but I'm not even convinced of that necessarily. I, I think that LDL is something that is just there. And what's really driving it is, you know, energy toxicity and oxidative damage and glycation and oxidation of these particles. And then uh, endothelial damage, to your vasculature and all these other things that have nothing to do with total LDL cholesterol. So it's really, really polarizing. You have all these doctors who think that, you know, cholesterol and LDL is not driving this. And then you have all these uh, uh, lipidologists who feel very strongly that it is. Uh, once again, the answer is always in between. It's always somewhere in the middle. Um, I do think that it's possible that uh, higher LDL is worse than lower if everything else is exactly the same. Um, but the, how often is that going to happen? Pretty much never. So I prefer to look at other markers instead, honestly. All right. We have a question from Debbie Jenkaitis, and she was, she's got two questions. Why low carb but not higher fat is the first one. Why low carb but not higher fat? Okay, so low carb has a has a problem, <laughs> and that is that we ignore the billion people out there who are getting the exact same success we are on 
low-fat, high-carb diets. So, so for every success story of a very low-carb, very high-fat diet, there's somebody out there who has the same success story on a very low-fat, high-carb diet. I mean, I spend more time on the low-fat, high-carb vegan and vegetarian forums than I do in the low-carb forums because I want to know what I'm missing in my little echo chamber, right? So I follow all of these people and I see all of these stories and you're going to find people who've had amazing success and reverse X and Y and uh, cured all sorts of crazy things on a low-fat, high-carb approach. They've lost a billion pounds. They've kept it off. They cured their uh, whatever. And so we've got a problem. Um, I think that, honestly, with the PE diet, I've kind of transcended the whole low-carb versus low-fat thing a fair amount. Uh, but I don't think that some people who are dogmatically low carb, like this is the only approach that works and this is what everyone has to do. I think some of those people need to spend more time looking at the other side of the coin because you can absolutely get success there as well. And I think that your very most successful people, which is your bodybuilders and your fitness models and your aesthetic athletes, they're low carb and low fat. And so you got to find what, what works the best for you. And you have to, your, your worldview better explain all those black swans out there because there's just as many low fat, high carb people as there are low carb, high fat. Uh, I might've said that backwards, but there's just as many people on both sides. You know what I mean? So that's something I'm really highly aware of. And I would encourage everyone in the low carb community to look around and make sure you're aware of all the successes on the other side of the fence and not in an echo chamber. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I'm really, uh, believe that the dogma in, in a lot of aspects and the absolutism is what really create more problems for us than, than solutions. Mm-hmm. That's not just diet. That's just everything in general. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, Debbie also wants to know, does keto really improve asthma symptoms and lessen the need for rescue? Uh, so what improves asthma symptoms is reversing insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. You can draw a graph of asthma symptom score versus fasting insulin level. And it's just a straight line up and to the right. So literally anything that makes you thinner and less insulin resistant is going to improve asthma symptom scores. And you will see low fat vegans who lost a bunch of weight and threw their albuterol inhalers in the trash. You will see a ton of low carb keto people who improve their asthma and threw their inhalers in the trash. Uh, I see people um, all the time who lose weight via any healthy, successful mechanism and their asthma dramatically improved. And that's probably uh, anything that drives fat loss and makes you thinner and healthier is going to improve your asthma most of the time on a population level, for sure. Awesome. This question comes from Catherine Miller. She wants to know um, about keto and respiratory allergies. What can she do supplements ETC to enhance the antihistamine reaction and low histamine? She said that she read the low histamine diet, but it is contradictory to keto. Right. I'm not a huge 
not a huge fan of the low histamine diet. Uh, so I haven't seen that be as successful as literally just being thinner. So like I said, all of your uh, inhaled respiratory allergy symptoms are going to improve if you're thinner. And I think whatever diet best accomplishes that for you is going to be the way to go. And I don't know that anyone has to specifically be on a low histamine um, diet just to improve their garden variety inhaled respiratory allergies like pet dander, dust mites, cockroaches, pollens of trees, you know, grasses, weeds. So you, your number one approach should basically be thinner and whatever diet does that for you is going to be probably best. Is there any kind of uh, micronutrients or anything that you would want to target that might help uh, inhibit a histamine response in the body? Not really, no. Uh, I wouldn't say, oh, yeah, you have to take this supplement and a lot of it. Uh, so, no, there isn't a specific supplement that I think would be helpful. And the last question also comes from Dave Davis. He's feeling very inquiring today. And uh, he asked, why does he feel hungrier on a high-protein diet versus a high-fat diet? Because <laughs> you're losing weight. Like anything that makes you lose weight – is going to make you hungrier. So, and, and a lot of this, this is something that bothers me because everyone's like, wow, when I eat a ton of fat, I'm just not hungry. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, yeah, uh, anytime you're eating a ton of anything and slowing down fat loss, you're going to be way less hungry. <clears throat> so losing fat makes people hungry. I mean, that's just, uh, a reality that part of the, the the secret in fat loss is to keep your caloric deficit low enough so that you, you can stand it and you can survive and not be starving to death, but high enough that you're still losing weight. Uh, if if you're not eating carbs, it really just comes down to fat balance. If the grams of fat you eat every day is equal to the grams of fat you burn every day, you're not going to lose any fat at all. And so you want to be eating a little bit less grams of fat than you're burning every day. Not so much less that you're starving and you can't stay on the diet and you're just going to eat a whole dozen Krispy Kremes or something like that. Um, so the secret is to shave down a few grams of fat every day so that you're you know, leaning into the discomfort of being a little bit hungrier, having to use a little bit more body fat. That's not going to feel great. You can kind of tell your body doesn't like it. Um, but that's what you're looking for, this slow, gradual uh, fat loss by just eating slightly fewer grams of fat every day than you're burning. And you can either do that by increasing your uh, exercise and your energy expenditure or by eating a couple less grams of fat. And honestly, I think the best approach is a little bit of both. So, yeah, if, if you shave the fat way down your diet, you're going to be super, super hungry. So, you know, don't be that aggressive. Try to pick a protein energy ratio that you can stand, that you can tolerate, where you're leaning into eating a little bit less fat, but not so much that you're just starving and it's not sustainable. And that's really the trick. And that's what everyone has to figure out for themselves. But, but you know, I want everyone to know that every fat loss is this war of grams every single day, where if you 
can eat just slightly fewer grams of fat than you burn every day, you're going to have this slow, gradual success, and you're going to slowly and sustainably lose weight, and that's what you're looking for. So anytime you can shave off a few grams of fat from your diet or expend a few more grams of fat with exercise, that's kind of your goal. That's kind of what you're trying to do. And not so much that you're starving, but just like just enough to be successful and keep moving the needle. And it's amazing what the body can do uh, and how it responds to just a little bit of a discomfort. Yeah, it seems like all the best changes come from a mild amount of discomfort. Yeah, yeah, you got to get out of your comfort zone. That's that's another big message is that, you know, uh, get out of your comfort zone with exercise, get out of your comfort zone with resistance, with um, with your diet. It's just uh, it's it, 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 that's the secret. So the next part, we like to do uh, just some short answer questions. They're not anything you really have to go in depth about, but it's a, a, a touchstone thing of, of just different short tidbits that people can take in. And one of the questions I always like to ask people are, what are three foods that absolutely everybody should stay away from? Oh, wow. Okay. Number one would be industrial seed oils. <laughs> So yeah, your industrial seed oils is probably the biggest one for me. Um, three foods that everyone should stay away from. Uh, the second one would be any food that's ref uh, high energy density, refined carb and refined fats together, like your donuts and your uh, sugar flour oil concoctions. Um, yeah, let's see. Ooh, what's the third one? Um, hmm. Yeah, I would say seed oils, probably sugar, and any refined carbs and fats together. Basically, your toxic slurry of sugar, flour, oil, processed foods. All right. You know, it's amazing how many times we ask this question at the top of almost everybody's list has been those seed oils. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. And what are some what are three foods that you think everybody should incorporate in their diet somewhat? So I love fish and seafood. Um, I think that I think the, the one of the biggest secrets to long-term sustainable meaningful fat loss is eating foods with a really high satiety per calorie. And fish has one of the highest satiety per calorie. Uh, of anything you can eat it's just insanely <clears throat> high in terms of like the nutrient density uh being absolutely maximum and the calories being absolute minimum fish and seafood is one of my favorites that's something i think everybody should be eating um i think that eggs are spectacular i mean you have so many nutrients there that you're not gonna necessarily easily get anywhere else the choline um this is another food that would be on my list for sure um yeah th those would be probably my two two favorites awesome so eggs and seafood mm -hmm. regular parts of my diet so i guess i'm doing something right <laughs> um so with all the challenges that people are facing nowadays what would be your best advice to be started on a, a healthier path for weight and for uh, 
health in general. Quickest way to get them started. Gotcha. So for me, it would be every time you eat, focus on the protein. So like every meal should be centered around protein. Every snack should be centered around protein. You should be basically eating to get protein. So it's time for a meal or a snack. You know, where's the protein? What are you eating as protein? Uh, if you just put this protein forward focus, a lot of other stuff is going to take care of itself. Uh, the other, the other thing is put maximum tension in the muscles of your body on a regular basis. So every day, try to generate as much tension as you can in, uh, pushing, pulling legs, chains of your body, you know, if you just sit around and never put maximum tension in your muscles, you're going to lose them. And that's where people get sarcopenia and end up with frailty and all of this stuff because they're never expending maximum muscular effort. So uh, number one, protein focus to every time you eat. Number two, maximum tension in your muscles on a daily. And those are probably, I think just doing those two things is going to get you 80% of your health results. Everything else is just, you know, those are the big rocks in the jar and everything else is just sand, honestly. And this is the early influencer series. So I want to know who are Ted Naiman's top uh, uh, healthy heroes, the biggest influences in your life for your approach to healthy living? Oh, wow. Okay. I'm a huge fan of Mark Sisson. So he's like, he's like the OG for me. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Gary Taubes. I'm a big fan of Mark Sisson. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Tim Noakes. Uh, those would be some of my really big uh, favorites. I, I also, I, I like Rob Wolf. He's awesome. Uh, other people in the space that I really respect that are a little bit more recent, uh, Marty Kendall, he's super cool. Um, but yeah, like the, for me, the, the, the OGs would be, you know, Gary Taubes, Mark Sisson, those guys are huge. Uh, I would also say, um, uh, Dr. E, Dr. and Dr. Ead's protein power, um, really, really, um, important people for me. Last question is is mainly focused on you. It's it's going to be unique to you because you're uh, our first. Yeah, I think you're our first doctor on the show. So, what would be if you could change something overnight in the medical industry to improve health uh, and care to patients? What would that one thing be? Oh, just way more focus on um, healthcare instead of sick care. Way more preventative. Like, okay, let's keep you. Uh, so, so much of medicine is just like you're about to die. How can we pull you back from the brink over and over and over again? I want to go way to the other side where it's like, okay, how can you be optimally healthy? Like, how can we really build wellness? How can we take you from average to elite? Uh, so. It, for me, it would be a focus on wellness and focus on diet and exercise and a focus on optimum health instead of just keeping you alive for a couple more months, you know what I mean? Which is what so much of medicine is focused on. That seems like a more logical and sustainable approach. <laughs> um, so if people want to keep apprised of what Ted Naiman's doing and what you're, you're up to with the next big things. How do they follow you? How do they contact you? 
Well, uh, the best place to follow me is probably Twitter, uh, where I'm on Twitter at Ted Neyman. Uh That's probably where I spend most of my social media time. Uh, I think anything I, I do will definitely be announced there. Uh, probably the most useful thing I've done so far is write the book, The PE Diet, and you can check it out at thepediet.com. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, gracing us with your presence in the interview today. It was, uh, it was very enlightening, and I very much enjoyed it. So we're going to close off with the Fatty Joe Show today, and I hope everybody has a great day, and remember to be kind with one another. Thank you for joining us on the Fatty Joe Show. Be sure to leave a comment and subscribe. It helps the show reach more people. To support the show, as well as Carrie Brown and Yogi's work on the blog, Keto Recipe Development, Masterclasses, and to gain access to private Facebook groups and other awards, Go to patreon.com slash the fatty Joe show or patreon.com slash Carrie Brown. Also check out our Carrie Brown and Yogi Parker YouTube channel for video versions of the fatty Joe show recipe videos and more. Join our awesome community on the Facebook group, the keto kitchen with Carrie Brown and Yogi Parker and check out our CarrieBrown.com website for recipes blog posts, discounts, cookbooks, masterclasses, and other great stuff. Thank you so much.